Well, good morning, Fellowship family. It is good for my heart and soul to gather with all of you in worship today. I, I did want to take a moment and extend a welcome to any guests that we have joining us this morning. We are so thankful that you are here, and we hope you find this to be a place that makes much of Jesus and the hope of the gospel. Um, I wanted to invite you to stop by guest services in the commons after this time of worship so uh, we can meet you and welcome you personally. And uh, also wanna encourage you, if, if you're newer with us, if you've only been here for a week or two weeks or maybe even a couple of months, uh, I, and you wanna learn more about our church family at Fellowship Greenville, I wanna invite you to join us next Sunday morning uh, for a little something we call Starting Point. And you can learn so much more about our community of grace here at Fellowship Greenville. So you can sign up online if you're interested in attending that. You can use the QR code uh, on the seat in front of you, or you could stop by uh, our Next Steps uh, table, which is also out in the commons, and there will be some folks that could uh, get you signed up. I, uh, I've been looking forward to this time all week, uh, primarily um, because it's been a very difficult week. And when we do come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, there is this uh, encouragement and a unifying hope to our heart and mind and body and soul. And I, I believe that regularly occurs when we gather, but I also think that it is sensed and experienced in an array of ways when there is hardship. Whether that hardship be personal, which is the case week in and week out for so many of you who walk in to worship here at Fellowship Greenville, or whether that hardship be corporate uh, as a church family if we're walking through uh, something difficult. Or even today, if it's a global with brothers and sisters abroad. I know that many of us have been tuned in to the atrocities in Israel and the horrific acts of violence against the Jewish people. Uh, unlike anything seen since the Holocaust, and I know that many of us have been continually praying for so many. Uh, in case you missed it, uh, earlier this week, uh, our team here put out a few specific ways that we could be praying. And so I'll share those with you now if I could. One, that there would be a swift end to the hostility and violence. Secondly, that the terrorists would be brought to justice. And third, that God would comfort the broken hearts of those who have lost loved ones or have had loved ones taken, and now for those that have loved ones in harm's way as the war unfolds. And so today, as we all come together united in Christ, I, uh, moment of transparency, I find myself uh, heavy-hearted for innocent people living in uh, unimaginable fear brothers and sisters in Christ in hard and desperate places, for missionaries who long to provide hope but are struggling with the feeling of hopelessness. Our staff team here at Fellowship gathers each Tuesday morning. We typically talk about some things and celebrate some things and pray about different things. And this past Tuesday, uh, before our staff meeting, I had started my day by reading through Acts with so many of you that are part of our community Bible reading plan. And uh, as many of you have noticed, in conjunction with our reading, our prayers that our team put together from our prayer collective, and I closed our staff meeting with the prayer from that Tuesday morning that I 
actually wanted to begin our time in the word with today. Simply entitled, A Prayer for Others. So would you bow your heads, close your eyes, and allow me to pray this over us. God of all grace, make us mindful of the needs of others. Make our hearts ever prayerful for them. We entrust them and their needs to you and to your wise providence and care. For the ill, the feeble, and the elderly who are not able to care for themselves, we ask for strength and healing for their bodies. For the poor, oppressed, hungry, and less fortunate, we ask that their needs would be met and that you would use us to do so. For those trapped by fear, depression, and worry, we ask that they would sense hope in the midst of their despair and that they might feel your peace that passes all understanding. For widows, orphans, those without a loving family, we ask that they might experience your compassion and find belonging in your family, the church. For strained relationships between family and friends, may all involved humbly see their great need for the grace and truth of Jesus. For those we know who don't have a relationship with you through Jesus, we ask that they would be drawn to see in the cross and resurrection that your mercy is the only remedy for their sin. Father, grant that all of these would find freedom, freedom in your son and by your spirit, freedom from bondage to self, freedom to service and hope. For your name's sake we pray, amen. And I also wanted to let you know that we'll give you more info uh, next Sunday in regards to how we strategically here at Fellowship Greenville try to partner with ministries and organizations in times like this. If you haven't heard us uh, share about that before, we have on multiple occasions, but we'll take some time. So a few of you have asked and we'll share some more with you about that uh, next Sunday morning. If you are newer with us, I wanted to let you know that we've been working our way through the first few chapters of Revelation in a sermon series called Seven, What the Spirit is Saying to the Churches. And we uh, have looked at each of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, where Jesus has some specific things to say to each church, and we believe things for us as followers of Jesus all these years later to think through and apply to our lives as well. And this morning, we're going to be wrapping up this series as we come to the last letter, the last message from Jesus to the church of Laodicea. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Revelation chapter 3. And before we jump in, I wanted to answer a couple of questions that you might have that have nothing to do with Revelation 3 and the church of Laodicea. Question number one is this, where in the world is Charlie Boyd? <laughs> and that's a really good and fair question. Uh, Charlie, Charlie has been traveling, he was overseas uh, for a couple of weeks. Uh, with Karen, his wife, visiting multiple missionaries uh, that are a part of Fellowship Greenville. And then he ar arrived back here in Greenville and then pretty quickly left to Pennsylvania with our uh, FG Seniors group. I heard they all had a lovely time, but he is back 
and he will be teaching next Sunday. I've seen him with my own eyes. I even talked to him this morning, so he's here. I just wanted to let everybody know. It's been a hot minute since he's been up here. I know it, you know it, everybody knows it. All right, good. Which leads to question number two. What are we walking through after this series if today is the last Sunday in this series? Also a great question. Our next series is building off of this series and it is entitled Multiply, What the Spirit is Saying to Us. And we are excited and thankful about how God is multiplying our community of grace here at Fellowship Greenville to reach our upstate community. As most of you are now aware, we're doing that through intentional church planting and through expanding this congregation down the road about six miles in the Adams Mill area of Highway 14. And uh, as we seek to bring the Adams Mill location to life through renovations to the facilities and launching services there and ministering to that geography, we recognize that this is going to be a God-sized need while also acknowledging that our God is very able. And uh, in leadership here at Fellowship, we are convinced that intentional prayer is one way that we can move forward with him together as a church family. So over the next 40 days, starting today, we invite you to pray with us as we seek to join with God in providing more space and opportunities to love and serve the people that he's bringing to us. We have for you this morning a 40 days of prayer guide that has been put together for all of us to use Uh, This prayer guide can be found on our website. It is uh, also in our church app, or you can pick up a copy, physical copy of the booklet today out in the commons area or at the back of Odd 1, back of Odd 2 as you head out the door. We would ask just one uh, per family if you're taking a physical copy, but be reminded they are in those other spots online and app. And uh, we're so excited about what God uh, is, is uh, the journey he has us on and uh, walking through this next series of multiply what the spirit is saying to us. We believe that it'll be encouraging, challenging, inviting, uh, a sense of expectancy and how the Lord continues to lead and direct us as a church family, especially as so many of us have been reading through and processing through the book, experiencing God. Uh, I've only been back here on the team for a couple of years now. And so this is a uh, kind of my first ride with the team through what the Lord is calling us to do in this way. And I've loved being a part of how the team here and the elders and the pastoral staff, the rest of the ministry staff are thinking prayerfully and strategically about where the Lord is taking us, whether it be a series on the seven churches that rolls into a series on multiply what the spirit is saying to us that so many thousand, more than a thousand of us reading through experiencing God together and then rolling into this prayer initiative together. I'm expectant and excited about what the spirit is doing and will continue to do as we walk in step with him. So as we turn our attention to Revelation 3, I begin by asking you a quick question and the question is this. How good are you at telling if someone is lying to you? How good are you at telling if someone is lying to you? Don't answer that out loud. You might discourage your spouse right here. As in, outside of putting on uh, one of these, uh, a lie detector test, you know, hook them up to the polygraph. Like, can you tell, like if you're talking with somebody, because a lot of people have tells. I don't know if you know that or not. If you want to grow in detecting if people are liars, a surefire way that I want to just let you know about is uh, have some kids. (laughs) They have some hilarious tells when they are little. Uh, I mean, it might be a bit amusing when they are tiny, because you don't even have to teach them. 
you know, to lie. They just do it. But obviously you're gonna to wanna to address it because you don't wanna raise up little liars. And this isn't a parenting message, so I'll just leave it at that. Next question, and it's really the reason that I asked the first question is so I could ask this question. This is really where we're headed today. Uh, how good are you at telling when you're lying to yourself? <laughs> how good are you at telling when you're lying to yourself? It's interesting because you talk to yourself more than anybody else talks to you. If that's true, there is the possibility, even likelihood, that the person you've lied to the most in your life is yourself. If you go all the way back to the beginning in the Garden of Eden, there was a serpent who asked the question of Adam and Eve, and at the root of the question was a lie. The question was, did God really say? And the lie at the root of that question was this thought. You can't trust God. You can live however you want. You can have everything you need in this life. You can do it yourself to have the life that you want to have. And I believe that people have been telling the same lie to themselves all these years. And sure, they tell it to other people too. They write songs about it. There's movies about it. There's books about it. Sadly, it gets preached at some places. And every few years or every few decades, someone will mix up the words a little bit to give it a fresh take, but the lie people are telling themselves is as old as the first humans on the planet, and the lie is this. I am self-sufficient. I am the final authority on all things me. I don't need anyone. But human self-sufficiency is a lie and an affront to a self-sufficient God who created you, created me, and everyone with a need for dependency. Dependency upon him. And what history has shown us, the history of the world, the history at times of the church, your personal history, my personal history, is that when creation, who was created to depend on the creator, instead looks to other created things to depend upon for their sufficiency, well, what happens is we find ourselves truly empty no matter what we may possess. We find ourselves often apathetic and complacent no matter our attempted drive. And we find ourselves incredibly alone no matter how many other created people surround us. Jesus himself calls us to reject the lie of self-sufficiency. John 15, 5, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Not a few things, not some things, not most things. Nothing. The call of Jesus is find your sufficiency in him the way he intended it all along. And I walk us through thinking about the lie of self-sufficiency today because it is at the root of the issue with the church of Laodicea. If I could sum it up in a statement, it would be this. Their self-sufficiency has led to their complacency which has led to their missing out on truly walking with Jesus. Their self-sufficiency has led to their complacency, which leads and has led to their missing out on truly walking with Jesus. With that being said, let me begin reading Revelation 3, verse 14. I'll read through verse 22, and then we'll walk through it together this morning. This is what it says. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, 
You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. Verse 18 says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we come to our last letter, to our last church, and I wanted to take just a moment and let us think about how this would have played out. The Apostle John has written down these words from Jesus to these seven churches and handed them off to a courier. Here's the map we used earlier in our time together. One author I read captured it like this. Having embarked from the island of Patmos with the book of Revelation securely tucked away in his messenger's pouch. He would have begun his travel along the circular route by first visiting Ephesus, Moving northward, he would pass through the cities of Smyrna and Pergamum, at which point, turning southeast, his journey would lead him to Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia. Finally, having come almost full circle along the well-beaten trade route, he would arrive at his final destination, Laodicea. And for the sake of remembering, this is a summary of what each church was reading as the letter arrived, Ephesus. Strong theological purity, but indifferent and not loving towards each other. Smyrna, persecution and suffering in the midst of poverty, but standing firm. Pergamum, loving and compassionate, but compromising theologically and morally. Thyatira, loving and serving, but tolerating false teaching. Sardis, living hypocritically because their reputation in the community did not match their reality. Philadelphia, small and perceived in significance, but patient in the midst of hostility. And that brings us to Laodicea, which was an incredibly wealthy city, maybe the richest in the area. They had a devastating earthquake back in 60 AD and rebuilt their entire city with no help from Rome. And all that means is this, they were rolling in it. They had all kinds of cash. They were the banking center. They were known for their fine linens and their bustling uh, wool industry. They had a medical school. It's affluent in every way. And one of the things that's interesting, if you study Laodicea, and the letter written to them, not a single word of praise or commendation from Jesus to this church. A few weeks ago, I had the chance to teach on the church at Sardis, and similarly, there was not praise for them. Of the seven churches, there were two, and there was no praise or commendation. Sardis and Laodicea. But if you recall, when we studied Sardis, Jesus did say that there was a small group that was still faithful. Here in Laodicea, nothing. In an incredibly self-sufficient culture, 
we find a self-sufficient church made up of a self-sufficient people because the church is a people. And if the people are self-sufficient, the church will be self-sufficient. And in being self-sufficient, they're complacent. And their complacency, well, that's leading them to miss out on the greatest invitation ever to truly walk with Jesus. Look back at verse 15 with me, if you would. Let's kind of walk through this verse by verse. This is what it says in verse 15. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, we'll stop there for a second. There's a good chance many of you have heard this passage talked about before. If you grew up in and around the church, I think of the seven churches, Laodicea is probably the one that pastors have used quite a bit to talk with folks. I heard a good bit about it myself uh, growing up. I'm not sure I really grasped what was being said uh, up until I was in college. I took a 10-week Uh, five days a week study through the book of Revelation my senior year at Cedarville University. Now, when I was growing up, I might have heard some people say something along these lines. Um, God wants you to be spiritually hot, passionate, hardworking Christian, or, or he'd even prefer you to be spiritually cold, an apathetic, you know, an apathetic person who doesn't even follow him. Be that. But don't be a person who claims to know Jesus but is lazy about their walk with him. And I remember thinking, really? Is that that what's being said? And then there's this talk about Jesus spitting people out of his mouth. The word there actually translates vomit. That's pretty strong. Jesus is so fed up that he wants to vomit people out of his mouth. So what in the world is this all about? Now here, I believe the key to understanding what Jesus is saying is actually understanding a bit more about the city of Laodicea itself And we've unpacked this a bit with each of the letters to the churches because there are some specific word choices by Jesus in each letter based off of the places, the cities, and the history of those cities that these followers of Jesus find themselves living in. So it makes sense that that's also happening here with Laodicea. And in Laodicea, the city sat six miles south of a town called Hierapolis and 11 miles west of Colossae, as in Colossians. You're familiar, the church of Colossae. And these three cities made up what, it was, what was known as the Lycus Valley. And this little topography lesson is important because the way the cities were situated meant that Laodicea didn't have a natural water supply. It actually depended on the other two towns surrounding it to supply their water that they needed. And if you study, you'll read and find that Hierapolis was known for their hot springs used for healing properties. Colossae was known for its cold, refreshing, drinkable water back in the day. All of that to say, when Jesus says, I wish you were hot, or I wish you were cold, I wish you weren't lukewarm, the churches, they receive this letter, they know full well the imagery, imagery he is using, and they know his statement is not about their spiritual temperature but about the fact that their works as the church in that town are useless. Cold water, I can use that. Hot water, I can use that. Lukewarm water, which was the water often as it traveled and finally made its way to the town of Laodicea, not good for anything. Matter of fact, Jesus says it makes him sick. Strong words. 
It's not the first time we've studied through these letters and seen Jesus say hard things, but this definitely catches our attention. And here's what I think, I think, you would think that they thought, right? Like what Jesus is saying here would be enough to kind of get their attention. Wouldn't it be enough that Jesus says, hey, you guys, as I observe you and your life and as I observe your witness in this town, I see indifference and I see apathy and I see complacency. Hey, church, you're here to impact the city with the good news and offer hope and healing for those suffering, those who are spiritually exhausted, and to invite people into life with me. But instead, you're a cup of lukewarm water. You would think just these few words would catch their attention, encourage them to make some changes, but there actually is more to the root of their issue. The root of the issue is the lie. They were living day in and day out the lie, the lie from the beginning, I am self-sufficient. Look back at verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove, I discipline, so be zealous and repent. There it is, did you see it? Jesus says to the church of Laodicea, you think that you need nothing. You think that you have it all. The root is that you're arrogant and you're prideful and you have placed yourself at the center of your universe now, some of you may wonder, and it's, 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 good, it's fine to wonder this. You may wonder, now, why does God really care if some people who claim to follow him operate from the premise that they have all that they need apart from him? Or I might say, in conjunction with him. Because for many of us, it's not the lie of, I don't need you, Jesus. I'm self-sufficient. For many of us, it's the lie of, I want you, Jesus, but actually, I'm still pretty self-sufficient. Which actually is the same thing as saying the first thing. But we lie to ourselves to convince ourselves to feel better about ourselves. So back to my question. Why does God really care that we're relying on ourselves instead of him? Well, here are a few verses for you to give you a glimpse. His word's not mine. Isaiah 42, 8 I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. Isaiah 48, 11. My glory I will not give to another. Or 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Simply put, God's not interested in people who claim to be followers of his making everything about themselves. And Jesus is saying to the church of Laodicea, your arrogant self-sufficiency has actually led to your complacency, to your lukewarmness, to your apathy, and the lack of spiritual impact in this town. 
And again, Jesus uses the imagery, look at all of this. Jesus uses the imagery of buy gold from me that is refined by fire and white garments to clothe yourself in your nakedness and salve to anoint your eyes so that you can actually see. So he takes all the things the town was known for, banks and wool and med schools. The med school was famous for ophthalmology. It's how they made their wealth. And he flipped it to make his point. In the midst of all of your perceived self-sufficiency, you're broke. In the midst of all of your perceived self-sufficiency, you're naked. In the midst of all of your perceived self-sufficiency, you're blind. In the midst of all of your perceived self-sufficiency, you're actually desperate. You're believing and living the lie that has been around from the beginning. And you don't realize it because the person you lie to the most is yourself. And listen, I'm not sure how you process these words from Jesus. I would guess uh, for some of you, based on your background, they might come across as harsh. They might come across as unloving. But did you know, listen, they're stern. There's no doubt about that. But I don't believe they're angry. As a matter of fact, in the Greek, these descriptors in verse 17 of wretched and poor, blind and naked, they all end in the same sound. And in Greek, it's the sound of compassion. Which is actually what you see when you read verse 19. Look back at it. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Do you hear what Jesus says here? Jesus says, I love you, so repent. And at the heart of repentance is an acknowledgement that you aren't self-sufficient. An acknowledgement that you've been attempting to be self-sufficient. But my encouragement to you is to be specific in the repentance. Like none of this is general stuff. Name the thing. I've been thinking about that this week as I've been studying this, knowing I'm standing up and teach it. What, are my, what areas of my life am I currently li- attempting to live in my own self-sufficiency? And then at the same time, don't be overly discouraged because Jesus isn't telling all of them that he's done with them. He's not saying get lost. He's not saying you bunch of losers. He's not saying there is no hope. As a matter of fact, Jesus is saying, here is some counsel from me to you. How kind is that? To a self-sufficient people, he still offers counsel. And not only counsel, he offers a wonderful, incredible invitation. Look back at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, how is... How great is that for an invitation? Now again, some of you may have heard this verse used back in the day in an evangelical, evangelistic way when someone was encouraging non-Christians to come to Jesus. And maybe that's your story. And when you came to Jesus, someone used this verse. And I want to let you know if that's the case, you're good to go. It counted. But (laughs) we've already established that these words are to the church, not to the unchurched. 
And again, understanding the city itself that it's being written to really is important to help you get the understanding. This week I was reading, I read this from Colin Hemmer. It said this, I thought it was so good. Jesus has once again drawn on imagery familiar to the people of Laodicea in order to make his point. For the city was situated four square on one of the most important road junctions in Asia Minor. Each of the four city gates opened to a busy trade route. The inhabitants of Laodicea, therefore, would have been very familiar with the belated traveler who stood at the door and knocked for admission. What is it that Jesus is saying? What is this invitation? To all of you who claim with your lips to follow me and walk with me and represent me in this world, I want to let you know that the lie still exists of self-sufficiency. And even as a follower of mine, you can at times choose self-sufficiency over walking with me. And that self-sufficiency over time will lead to your complacency. It will lead to your apathy. It will lead to your spiritual lukewarmness. It will impact your communion with me. I love this invitation of Jesus. He's not kicking the door down. I'm going to huff. I'm going to puff. And I'm going to kick it in. It's not the invitation of Jesus. John Piper says it this way. I thought it was so good. This letter is addressed to lukewarm Christians who think they have need of nothing more of Christ. It is addressed to churchgoers who do not enjoy the riches of Christ or the garments of Christ or the medicine of Christ because they keep the door shut to the inner rooms of their lives. All the dealings they have with Christ are business like lukewarm dealings with a salesman on the porch. But Christ did not die to redeem a bride who would keep him on the porch while she watched TV in the den. His will for the church is that we open the door, all the doors of our life. He wants to to join you in the dining room to spread a meal out for you and to eat it with you and talk with you. The opposite of lukewarmness is the fervor you experience when you enjoy a candlelit dinner with Jesus Christ in the innermost room of your heart. What I want to articulate this morning is that these words from Jesus to the church at Laodicea are for every person in this room who knows Jesus to consider today, October 15th, 2023, inviting you to ask some questions that I've been asking myself. Where are you currently living self-sufficiently? Where are you currently buying into the lie that what you want is the center of the universe or that you are the center of the universe? Or maybe the issue is that you're attempting to realize a better self-sufficient version of yourself. That's what's most important to you. And I don't have time to get into it this morning, but that question that I just posed, that line of thought is pervading Western evangelical Christianity. And it'll destroy you 
In what ways have we grown apathetic, complacent in our walk with Jesus as a result of our self-centeredness? Does that make sense? Like start peeling the onion back. So some of you might quickly go, I've been pretty apathetic. I've been pretty complacent. But peel that onion back. And I think what you find underneath that is what was going on with the church of Laodicea. Underneath the lukewarmness, they thought they had everything they needed in and of themselves. Or maybe I could ask it this way. In what ways are you spending your life building your own throne to sit on when you're being invited to sit with Jesus on his? In what ways are you spending your life building your own throne to sit on when you're being invited to sit with Jesus on his? Look at verse 21. The one who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. How about this? Don't push away what the spirit is saying to you today in regards to your tendency, my tendency towards self-sufficiency and complacency. Lean in. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus says, to the one who conquers, you will sit with me on my throne. And again, this language of conquerors is present tense hope for their our future reality as followers of Jesus. And I am undone by this thought. If you want a beautiful picture of what Jesus is actually saying here, then keep reading. Because as soon as you come out of chapter three, you go right into what? Revelation four and Revelation five, where the throne room of heaven is described in unbelievable detail. If you get the chance this week, go read it. Because I believe that it makes this invitation from Jesus just come to life so much more. There is an invitation from Jesus here to this church that was living in self-sufficient apathy and complacency. Walk with me. He's not telling them to get lost. Walk with me. Every part of your life, every corner, you will sit with me on my throne. Not because we've earned anything, but because of his grace and mercy. Not because of your sufficiency or my sufficiency, but because of his sufficiency. Jesus is our sufficiency. And I saved the first verse of this passage for last on purpose because I think we see in it the compelling piece of the rebuke and the exhortation and the promise. Look back at verse 14. This is what it says. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. He, Jesus Christ, is the amen, the faithful and true witness. Amen means um, strong affirmation of something written or something said. It's acknowledging that something is valid. It's acknowledging that something is binding. It is a way of saying something is trustworthy that something is foundational. And the reason I give all of those descriptors is because Jesus did not say 
Amen. Jesus said, I am the amen. I am the affirmation. I am the validation. I am the confirmation of all that God has said he will do, he will actually do. And if this is true, and I believe that it is, and if you are in Jesus Christ, a son, a daughter of the king, then you know what that means. It means that he is your affirmation. It means that he is your validation. He is your confirmation. It means that you can actually decline the lie of the world that we live in 24-7 of self-sufficiency. It means because of Jesus, you can actually reject passivity. You can reject apathy. That you can embrace sweet fellowship with the creator of the universe. Jesus says, look to me. Because I am the amen. I had a little bit of an idea of how the service would unfold today, but not in full. I was working on my message. So it wasn't in my notes. But if Al and Charlotte could speak to you today, I 100% believe they would say, it's all true. It's all true. Every promise. We conquered because he conquered. And you guys will not believe the throne that we're worshiping at. The song we're closing with today is uh, entitled, Look to the Lamb. And I just wanna invite you to go ahead and stand to your feet, both auditoriums. Let's let this be our closing prayer this morning.